0: For twenty five percent off your DNA test kit,
1: I just had another epiphany right now because I've done so much work on getting uh, him recognized as animal feed. That's been a, a huge focus of mine, and I never really thought about the fact that that was really my titular experience. This is the Canamom Show and learn something new about this magical plant on The can mom Show with Joyce Gerber.
2: From the Tip O'Neill Studios in North Cambridge, Massachusetts, it's The can mom Show. Now here's your host, Joyce Gerber.
0: Welcome back to The can mom Show, a podcast where we are talking about caring for and giving voice to women in the emerging cannabis industry, one can of story at a time. Happy spring, Dave.
2: Happy spring. Yeah. The- birds are singing the sun is out i think people are playing baseball it all means we're probably going to get a blizzard next week
0: true that It's new england (laughs) right it's snowing in colorado right now it's It's our guest she's supposed to be quiet for a little bit longer we're going to introduce her in a minute but before we get to today's guest who's in colorado and it's beautiful but i love colorado we'll talk about that in a minute so it's new england it's spring i'm going to do um for the Canamom Show Culture Corner, I'm going to do a recommended episode of The Hidden Brain. So I think we need some music, Maestro. The Culture
2: Corner.
0: All right. So the episode, or the Hidden Brain episode, I want to recommend because I recommend Hidden Brain on a regular basis. The Hidden Brain episode is titled "Made of Honor." to play on words. Mm -hmm. And it's explaining the distinctions of honor culture versus dignity culture, which Mm -hmm. is just another interesting insight into how beliefs and values define how literally we behave. So I'm going to give, for example, have you ever wondered why some people can't let an insult pass or refuse to look for a positive perspective? So they act out to defend their honor and reputation, even though they usually escalate something that should have been a minor altercation into something more dangerous. Do you know what I mean?
2: Their honor wasn't really being questioned in the first place, but they just thought it was.
0: Exactly. So that was a culture. Again, it's like a belief system. Like, what does it mean to be a man? Or again, we don't know what culture is. It's all around us. And then we just absorb it. So, I mean, I never really think of honor cultures as America, but I suppose it, I think of honor cultures like where they defend women's honor. You know what I mean?
2: (laughs) I am here to defend your honor, my lady. Yeah. Yes.
0: Which has its... But here they talk about in America, there was another like psychologist from Harvard or something. I forget who wrote the book. But again, doing these studies and thinking about his own background. So he was talking about he he was Scottish. His family came from Scotland. They moved to the States. And at that time, in the middle of the country where he grew up, I think maybe it's Nebraska. I don't remember. Families from Scotland came together. They Mm -hmm. just like, it was family. So they had more kids. It's like one of these high So there's just more people there. And Scotland apparently has a very honor culture. You defend your reputation. That is what you do, Right.
2: Yes, Mike Myers used to have a character on Saturday Night Live who would say, "If it isn't Scottish, it's crap." <clears throat> That's pride.
0: <laughs> anyway,s it's just this like big question of how do you decide what traits are valued as worthy of battle? I mean, I'm a lawyer and a divorce attorney. I'll go, I'll fight for the things I really believe in. But this idea that sometimes people are willing to escalate small things into bigger things and the one way he brought it back to culture, like I think of it in law. So we have laws and policies that literally allow people to live up to the values of honor culture by saying that you don't ever have to retreat in defense of what you believe, even if you're wrong with the stand your ground laws in Florida. Mm-hmm. So that's an idea that you that's that's cultural.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it kind of came up when we were talking about International Women's Month. You guys get a month or a week? What was it? We got
0: a day and then a month. And like, then a I...
2: month. <laughs> and you made a joke about it, like, even though we represent more than 50% of the population. In other words, it doesn't sound like you always have your tentacles up to defend the honor of your gender. That's not a bad thing. Sometimes you do. I know you're very proud of being a woman, but you don't necessarily jump at every chance to defend your honor there.
0: But True. it's the idea that it's, there's dignity, like human life. It's, it's this idea is if you're like, the other example he gave was suicide rates amongst white men, which I, I always assumed was had to do with guns. But mm. he brought it back literally. He said you could trace it literally back to honor culture, this idea of you just, if, if your reputation is damaged in any way, then you don't have any worth. So you have to defend it to the death. Whereas dignity culture talks about, and I always brings it back to cannabis, mm. dignity culture, like our human soul, just the fact that we exist is that is value enough and that sometimes mm. people just do things that are again we all live in our own little universes so this idea that someone is even thinking about you is kind of interesting yeah. and that whatever the action is that made you feel so angry you're allowed to kill that person even though that person might not even been thinking about you mm. that's kind of a funny way of thinking about the world it's, it's very um i guess it's very self-centered i don't know what to think about it
2: actually. yeah and i <laughs> i think that's wrapped up a little bit in the Woke culture, isn't it as well? Like certain things will trigger you and force you to go into a defensive mode when really maybe you should have let it go.
0: Yeah. Or ask questions. I did some training this week about the difference between questions of persuasion Mm -hmm. and questions of understanding.
2: Okay. What is that?
0: So persuasion is like how we used to talk to people as lawyers. Don't you believe this? (laughs) I I, I
2: object, Your Honor. She's leading the witness. Yeah, no, you're right. The way
0: I interview people is I have a genuine care and concern about what I'm asking them because I want to know. So, those are questions of understanding and how questions of understanding open up people's space to see maybe this differently. And in the training, this is true. This is sort of off topic, but I'll get back in a minute. The woman I was talking with, we had to sort of do exercises together. And my statement was about cannabis. I believe that cannabis is beneficial for women's health and wellness. And she did not believe it at Mm. all.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And so you would like to ask, well, well, or maybe it's the other way around. She would have asked you, aren't you embarrassed to be working in an industry that has to do with drugs? When she should have asked, "What? tell me about why you find it enlightening and invigorating and fulfilling to do what you do.
0: Yeah, exactly. Questioning people instead of trying to persuade them, because you can never persuade people. So it was interesting. And at the end of the conversation, she didn't, but she didn't, she never got, she actually was asking me so many questions of persuasion that she never got to the other ones because she just couldn't believe.
2: Yeah, she wasn't listening. She was making an argument. It was just in the form of a question. Yeah. So. Which is how Jeopardy got started. No, never mind. Exactly. So.
0: (laughs) So again we don't know nothing about our own brains. That is what I've learned from the hidden brain. I actually think cannabis functions in the dignity cultures. That's kind of the point of it is that you can become one body, mind, spirit, and you are together and connected. And that allows you to have dignity in yourself. So that's connected back to cannabis always. So if you want to learn more, again, the hidden brain, all of them are great. The one I listened to last week was made of honor. And I don't know, it's just like your beliefs that part of your culture literally help you shift the truth of the narrative. Like when you manifest bad stuff you're manifesting bad ideas and we're here trying to manifest quality ideas so we can make things better
2: amen a hidden amen bra- hidden brains a podcast you probably know where to find your podcast people but you can always go to hiddenbrain.org if you want the whole catalog
0: because i don't know it's like one of those i used to kid that i didn't really listen to podcasts but i listen to radio and so that's actually a radio show i listen to on sundays but you can get it as a podcast oh, I'm looking-
2: <laughs> <laughs> is the difference between you and me i only speak podcasts sorry but yes,
0: it's both. Yes. I'm still I'm still learning to be who I am. All right. So that was my kind of mom culture corner today. But we also have a guest. So let's introduce her. Today's guest is an industrial hemp policy and supply chain expert who initiated her career in sustainable development before focusing on the emerging hemp industry. Her experience in the application of open systems to create sustainable development and climate action plans gives her a unique understanding of food systems, agriculture, and emerging industries. Today's guest now utilizes her experience working with regulators, policymakers, businesses, farmers, and agricultural producers to implement strategies to develop the hemp industry, both domestically and globally, creating partnerships with the agriculture industry to drive profit through stewardship stewardship and innovation. And she just started an all-female ag business, Agriculture Policy Solutions. So much to talk about. Please welcome to the Cannon Mom Show, Hunter Buffington. Welcome, Hunter. Hi, Joyce. Hi, Dave. Very excited to be here this morning, see what we're going to talk about. If also, Okay, so everyone knows I'm like, I'm shifting into hemp. I actually moderated a hemp panel at the NICAN conference last weekend or two weekends ago. This is my new favorite subject. So I'm so excited to Excellent. talk to somebody who really knows what they're talking about. All right, before we get into what you do, can we just start with your family story? I mean, we're going to get to policy work, but just can you a little, talk about a little about your dad and your mom and what your dad's connection is to Dick Cheney and how he taught you not to give up and your Native American roots is a lot there. So just sort of like, so people have a foundation of who you are and how you got here.
1: Yeah, and it's always great to know where you come from and how you are influenced by generational information. And in my father's story is, so political and has so much to do with how I came to the work, but um, really coming to hemp and even cannabis is much more related to my my history of being a brown girl growing up in Wyoming in a ranching community pushing cows and really in that Western culture. I feel like I'm, I'm coming out and sharing all my secrets. Joyce, so, <laughs> to you today for getting me here, but. That relationship was really profound in understanding my own connection to the earth. And that was that, that Native story because I was not raised on the reservation. I'm a couple, few generations from being on the reservation. And so I was always trying to understand my place and how to connect to my world. And a lot of that was the ground and the air and being present and and being able to feel most connected when I was outside. So that was part of, you know, how I started down this pathway and was always trying to understand how to reconcile those feelings of of needing to be attached uh, to nature. And then also this very intense Western culture that I was immersed in and this is where my father's background and it's my mother who's native. So mm-hmm. she obviously had a lot of influence. My, my great grandmother was incredibly pivotal in, in helping me to understand who I was and, and why I felt so
0: displaced. I mean, you my, are, I kind of like go back to like this hidden brain. I mean, you almost you're in the middle of the honor, dignity, culture world. You're like the center of that. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, it's funny that that was. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, the culture corner this morning, because I was <laughs> I don't know, I'm nodding along. No one can
1: see that, but definitely can understand how that makes us perceive ourselves and how we present ourselves to the world. And my father, he was a geologist. So my godparents were all in the oil industry, but he helped to run the State Department of Energy. And he was probably the most progressive and intellectual person in my world um, up until he passed six years ago. So just an incredible person. And I know that he'll be so proud of the work that I do today, but it really taught me where politics intersects logic and how that they don't play well together. Certainly not often are they in the same room. My father started the first recycling program in the country and grade schools in Wyoming because he felt that... Oh, he and what were what, 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 what you in that? What did he do that? Um, that was in Cheyenne, Wyoming. And that was, it would have been in the, probably the late 80s. Oh, wow. Okay. That he did that. So this was something that was pretty shocking, especially in Wyoming. But he thought that the children would be the best vehicle and advocates for for recycling. And it was, was wildly successful. It was one of the things I was really proud about when I was going to school was that those recycle bins were there because my father really wanted to support the planet and it helped to support that intersection, right, of who I was spiritually and philosophically and the way I wanted to be in the world. And Dick Cheney and he, because my father was one of two people that ran the Department of Energy, I'm sure you would imagine Dick Cheney was not particularly excited about a recycling program. He was definitely much less excited about the wind projects that my father put, that obviously not just himself, but he advocated and really led the development of the wind turbines that are on the border between Colorado and Wyoming. And so that kicked off a very, very adversarial relationship between my father and Dick Cheney, who even he, he fired my father. My father was immediately hired back. He then dismantled a portion of the energy division to get rid of him. My father was unemployed for a couple of years. I really remember that that was in, you know, the the early nineties. And I'm sure you can imagine it was pivotal for us. There was uh, a moment at the same time when Dick Cheney had separated the water, the mineral, and the land rights in Wyoming so that folks that were actually grazing cattle through permitted grazing um, allowances on land in Wyoming had their cattle poisoned because they were nickel lining on the same land. And some of you may remember this um, when ground beef prices, it was like $8 a pound in the 90s. And it's because they literally wiped out most of the cattle production in Wyoming because of this. And so it was just incredibly interesting to watch my father stand for his ideal, stand up against this incredibly powerful politician and really not not just be, I mean, he was loved for it. It was difficult, but you can't live on love, right? And then to see that come to fruition in a world now where I can say claim it, in a room full of agriculture professionals, rural agriculture professionals. This is a whole it's a whole different world.
0: Oh, it is. Um, that's so uh, hopeful. It's Again, it's so interesting hopeful. what people are willing to fight for. I, again, I don't really know Dick Cheney personally, obviously, but I know what he did. And I was aware of politics back in the day. And who knows? Yeah. I mean, maybe it was the money. I assume it was the money. But this idea that you live in Wyoming, these are the same state. You guys are living in the same state and you see the you experience the earth so differently. It's it's a different experience. And Wyoming is an incredible
1: place. There's nowhere I've ever been where the sky is, is bigger. And, and it is the motto, Big Sky Wyoming. But it, it's true. And uh, there's a lot of plain states where the sky is just as big, I'm sure. But there's a, a feeling of solitude in Wyoming that I've just never really experienced anywhere else. And and I do live in Colorado now. It turns out that solitude is, is great for individual healing
0: and wellness, but it's difficult to pay bills. <laughs> all right. And all right. So Dick, Dick Cheney, we could talk about him forever. He didn't shoot your dad, though. Nope. He didn't do that. And you're, Amer- you're Native American, which is for your mother. And so did you? is that what you felt connected to as a child growing up? Like, what did you, how did you think of yourself? That's uh, a really deep question. Okay. <laughs> I My great-grandmother
1: um, was the last registered Sioux. We're oh, from okay. the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. So I've been to the reservation. I know where I'm from, but she made the decision to take her children after my great-grandfather had passed. He served in the war and she took her children from the reservation and moved into spearfish South Dakota basically is a housemaid in exchange for room and board so that her children could go to school. My my grandmother and my uncle, my great uncle. And it was during a time when uh, Native children were being removed from their tribal parents and from the tribal lands. And at the time, her goal was to assimilate her children into white culture. And so it was always a real pain point. I really didn't understand why I felt so different. And then when I was 15, I, I kind of had a little bit of a, a breakdown and I said, great grandma, like nobody understands me. i come to your house and I see these things and you tell me stories. And she's always telling me stories by her woman was, was one of the ones that was really meaningful for me, but a lot of stories. And I felt like she could confide in me and tell me, where I really came from, and it—it's very painful because my grandmother on the other side of it was concerned about my brownness. Really wanted to make sure that I was perceived as white. My mother, uh, same thing, used to perm my hair, and you guys can't see me, but I have very curly dark hair. And so, having a perm and sun streaks was definitely part of that assimilation in my my mother's mind. And so it really wasn't until I left Wyoming and actually went to Arizona when I started meeting other urban Indians and really started to understand that it wasn't just me or my mom or my grandmother that had had this experience, that there was this generational displacement of Native children. And I still struggle today to really identify as a Native American woman because I don't have my feet are on the reservation. I don't feel like I really come from there the way that I could. And I don't want to misrepresent that. But my story is not singular. And the more that I've been able to share that experience with other Native people, the more common it becomes. And it's interesting, um, Especially now, Joyce, to see some of these cases for the nations and tribes that are now pushing back on a lot of uh, the the promises that were made, the treaties that put us in these kind of isolated positions with no resources and drove a lot of of that that separation from our tribal
0: origins. Interesting times. It again, I'm getting chills, and, and I, I'm a Jewish person. We talk all the time about displacement and isolation. I totally get that. And I never understood it as an American, how it worked in our own community. So these stories I've been hearing, I mean, specifically, even like about Native American food culture, which literally had never even crossed my mind. I'm like, oh, my God, could you imagine Italians without food? Like the idea that a culture had had their food taken away from them is just. But we're talking about it. It's almost like cannabis. Like we're talking about it. We're exposing it. You're not alone anymore. You're not. I'm talking about isolation you're talking about community so this is really changing and again the Native American culture heals our earth that's literally your purpose here right that's how we talk that's how it's talked about and not like again honor versus <laughs> honor versus dignity how do we yeah. talk about who we are and what do we believe all right so let's get back to cannabis so what is your cannabis story what did you think of it growing <laughs> up I mean you were in Wyoming you were you a rodeo queen is that did you tell me that I, I told you all my
1: secrets, stories I did. I was telling a colleague and a friend of mine this morning that I was nervous because I feel like I'm coming out today on this podcast. Like, well, there's gone, so boy. many things that I shared with you, and and I was gearing up, getting ready to, to you know, kind of share this story with the world, and it. So my cannabis story, much like most of what has made me who I am today, definitely began in Wyoming, right? So again, very intense Western culture. I was a rodeo queen, not once but twice. In fact, mm-hmm. my first business uh, was training horses and teaching riding lessons. Probably not a shocking, being a good Wyoming cowgirl, right? But. When I was 18, and so I was well, actually I was still a senior, so 17 in Wyoming, I developed some really serious cystic ovaries, and I'm sure you can imagine that training horses, riding horses had become incredibly painful. My doctors were prescribing pain medications that were basically muscle relaxers, and because I, I broke green horses, this, this was simply not an option to be taking painkillers, and. By then, I had started to embrace my brownness, and I had quite a few friends that were in that the Hispanic community as well as in that the cowboy community, and they were the ones that were like, Gee, "Just why don't you just smoke pot? Like seriously, it'll it'll be great. You'll it'll fix everything." And I was like, "No way. There's no way." So much stigma. But then I just I had really kind of run to my wits end. And I didn't know what to do, and so I did, in fact, smoke a joint with one of my friends and the the relief i it's it's for any of you that have polycystic ovaries, it's just a weight, it's kind of constantly there, and then you'll have these incredibly sharp shooting pains kind of come out of nowhere. It just depends on how you hit that and it was just an immediate sense of the weight lifting, and I wasn't completely insolved of the pain, but I could function. I can ride horses. I was fast enough to respond. Yeah, well, was that, yeah,
0: what was year? What year was this? So this would have been in 92. Okay. A yeah, while well ago. 93. Okay. Yeah. So, so, did, so you had to act. So this is interesting. So you were accessing an illegal drug in 1992 in Wyoming.
1: Yes. Exactly. Oh, Joyce. And there's so many ways that this goes down a twisted path because the irony is that. So I was then smoking every time I was writing. Right. So, rodeo queen in Wyoming. And so, what I did, and this is terrible. And it, again, it's so ironic today. I started smoking tobacco. So, I would roll tobacco with my cannabis. No one would know that there was cannabis because there was enough tobacco to cover the smell. And then away I would go. I was just every, and, and at that time, everybody chewed. Not, not, not some women, in fact, had. Chew tobacco. So it really just wasn't, it wasn't a big deal. Although I'm sure you can imagine it was frowned upon because delicate young ladies didn't smoke tobacco. (laughs) Right. But it allowed me to self medicate in very public places. And that's a very,
0: very smart and clever way that I have never heard anybody talk about before. Usually it's the hiding, it's in the bathroom and they're spraying themselves. But, uh, Mm -hmm. but it it made you take up a worse habit in order to have a healthy habit, which is sort of, it's true. But it's true.
1: (laughs) All right, still dealing with that a little bit, but that was really <laughs> my intro. And then I did work
0: in in California on cannabis. So can, uh, can I clubs. back up? So, how, so who knew that you smoked cannabis? Just your friends and the? It was cannabis. really
1: only my brown friends. And then I was imagine that my my politics began to really diverge at that time as well. And so I really became interested in punk culture. And so my my newly burgeoning relationships in that the punk culture, they knew and they were of course wildly supportive as well. So that really helped to kind of define the or I guess maybe
0: manifest more of the dichotomy that had been my life growing up in Wyoming at that time. That's funny. So and they were okay with the rodeo queen? They they invited you in, the punks? I mean I think that everybody really knew that I was, I think that's why they wanted
1: me to be a rodeo queen is they they really wanted to open themselves up and, and be more diverse and have uh, a different group of folks that might be yeah. interested in that. And a lot of what I did was was talk to people that came to Frontier Days. Imagine that. So it was a very <laughs> right, well, public. Can, can, cannabis PR again,
0: bring, bringing people together. Okay, so you're going through, you're doing this and then. Now you're hemp. I mean, we should probably get to your actual policy work, but okay. Yes. Uh, so, so again, hemp. a lot of people don't know
1: about my relationship with, with marijuana because I've
0: been working in hemp primarily as a, a public person. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, all right. So you do divide it. So, all right. We can talk about that later. All right. So you were using cannabis, What you were using the cannabis plant that had THC in it at higher levels to help with the medicinal issues. Yeah, and you are also because you're in an agricultural world, and you. So, what did you know about hemp? Like, what was your relation? Like, what did you know about hemp, and why did it even? Why was it even an interest to you?
1: Yeah, so it's a very different story because I was invested in natural products. I really, was disgusted by our dependence on plastics and the way that we view permanence of products. Um, we're a consumer culture, and yet we utilize products that live much longer than than we do. And, and that is so inappropriate for, for my thinking that I really wanted to identify natural ways to replace a lot of those products. And the first time that I really fell in love with hemp was as a food source. And, and this is a, another interesting story. I, I did Sustainable development, both internationally and domestically. When I had just graduated with my master's degree, I was taking contracts overseas. These were post-conflict communities, generally small tribal communities in Africa. Central African Republic was in fact where wow. where this first experience happened. And I had heard about help houses. So that was already something that that I was interested in and had been considering, but it just really kind of scratched the surface. And then when I was in the Central African Republic, the women, and it was a post-conflict group, so there was no men, just children and women. And my job was to help them to understand and, and create some sort of an economy so that they could be sustainable. The goal was really to to find something that they can
0: sell, right? A so you had, to, you, had to, you had to ask questions of understanding. Right,
1: and <laughs> yeah. it was also a very, a very uh, white perception. Like, oh, yeah. we have to find them something to sell sustainable instead of saying, how, do they have food and shelter and, and water and, and all those things. Yeah, yeah. So they raised goats. And so the goats were, in fact, the value proposition that I was focusing on. And the communities, and again, post-conflict, very boring, tribal entities, but they there was a a grazing area in the the lee of the mountain that they would take turns taking their goats to. And so the fact that they all shared this one spot was profound in, in the first place. And what I noticed was that we walked the goats there and there's this really scraggly looking tall weed that has seeds on it. And then I'm looking at the the leaf and I'm like, that that looks like the cannabis leaf on this weed plant in the middle of Africa. And the, the goats would go over and they would literally take most of, as much of the plant as they could into their mouth and they would strip the leaves and the seeds off of it. And they would take their goats there every two to three weeks. And they told me that it would keep them milking. Like that one visit every two to three weeks to that patch would make sure that the dairy goats were still producing. And so that was kind of that moment where I was like, this is an incredible plant. There's nothing else that's growing here and there's no inputs. They're literally just walking away, leaving it alone, and it's producing enough material to.
0: What year was that? What, you know, do you
1: have that? what did you have that epiphany or see that? What year? That would have been, hold on, I have to think back. So okay. that was probably
0: 2012. So big, big stand of time, right? And then, the, the idea that, you know, now again, you can eat cannabis. I mean, you can eat it. You can use the hemp plant for food, which I actually didn't know about. I was following the hemp nut the other day and he was talking about food as a supplement. Like any, you can eat it. You can wear it. You can build with it. It's good for the ground. It's good for the yeah, or Earth. It, it, it takes. It's good for animals. It's just the idea that it's taken. It's been taken out of our system systematically, and you see this in 2012 in Africa. Yeah, that must have been kind of eye opening.
1: It it absolutely was, and and I just had another epiphany right now with you, Joyce, because I I've done so much work on getting uh, have recognized as animal feed. That's been a huge focus of mine, and I never really thought about the fact that that was really my my titular experience.
0: With hemp, with as an animal feed, even back in two thousand and twelve. That's that's amazing. But don't, again, and I don't, get, I'm not a scientist. I know nothing about the human body. I say this all the time. But if it was always part of the culture, if hemp was just everywhere, and the cannabinoids, we have our endocannabinoid system, and we were just naturally getting our cannabinoids from our food, from our water, from the earth, from the plant, whatever. It existed everywhere. Yeah, it's like it's like that's why that's why it feels like CBD is so weirdly effective on us now because we're so deficient in it in so many ways and we didn't we didn't even know we were deficient in it we weren't feeding it and why thc induced cannabis is whatever it is but it's a, it's so powerful for our bodies because we need it and we've been deprived of it for a very long time intentionally systematically
1: yeah yeah <laughs> absolutely and i think one of the other things that we're just really coming to understand is the the diversity of this plant genetically the The opportunity to create horticulture genetics that provide different variations in that nutrition or different fiber properties for building or for textiles. And even the potentiality of producing genetics whose primary goal is to pull carbon into the roots. There's just a profound potential for this plant. And and. For me, when we think about the fact that it, it is food and shelter and clothing, it really provides that opportunity to to break the cycle that we have of dependence on what is the finite resource and not not to get weird about it, but I mean we really are burning dinosaurs. And from the perspective of leaving no trace and not creating are covering the earth surface with things that um, are not useful when you think about the way we use plastic it's very very just just disturbing and, and we need to change that this plant gives us an opportunity to do that but right back to your earlier culture corner man i've experienced that all the way from hiding my weed and tobacco in Wyoming to being arrested for being an advocate for very sick people who needed medicine to now being in a position where I work primarily in the agriculture industry. And boy Joyce, if you'd have told a 21 year old hunter that I was going to find myself back in agriculture as a professional woman in her 40s, I would have I probably would have used some expletives. There's just no way that I thought that's what was going to happen.
0: Never say never, young woman. I've said never many times and here I am. So again, this is what you're drawn to. This is your purpose. This is your combination of skills and experiences and culture all kind of combined into one. And hemp could save the world. Like we can go from carbon to cannabis and you're actually a human being who can do this to help us go there. So I am so excited that you are here doing it. So thank you. (laughs) All right. So tell me about the agriculture policy solutions. Who's working with you? What are you doing? And yeah, what are your visions? Yeah, so we, we've we been alive on um, just about a
1: month and I, am, I, I couldn't be more excited about the opportunity to come back and really work directly with the industry. I have spent most of my career in the public sector, either working with municipalities or, or doing legislative and, and policy work, but I'm really a scientist. At heart. Um, And I say that because research and data is the way that we can remove emotions from policy. And it's how I try to get to good policy. And why I think farmers are so underrepresented is that they're not in the room with the policymakers. So their perspective is lost. And the knowledge that they bring to our systems is so incredible. So I've always been really driven to try and make sure that the farmer voice is in the room. I mean, if if we don't have food, right? If we don't have food, if we don't have livestock, then we just can't survive. And I was working with Element Six Dynamics, who is wonderful, very focused on hemp paper. I'm very excited about what their work and what they're doing. But my focus has been on these sustainable systems and policy that, that allows the opportunity for hemp to flourish. And so I wanted to be able to diversify my portfolio and really keep doing a lot of the, the advocacy and regulatory work that I was doing. So my colleagues, Jessica Scott, who Jessica Scott and Tillery Sims, we all have a background in agriculture, but it was hemp that brought us together. And in mm-hmm. fact, Jessica and I were uh, both executive directors of HIA chapters back in the day, right? Mm-hmm how we met. And then all three of us worked with the Hemp Feed Coalition. And I was the executive director from the beginning of the Hemp Feed Coalition up until 20, the, 2021 when I joined Element 6. But Jessica was the secretary. Tillery was a steering committee member. So that's how the three of us really came together and started working on animal feed. Hillary's in Texas. We worked on some animal feed legislation and she brought an opportunity to me to do a feed memorandum in Texas. And what an opportunity. If you can get hemp grain uh, meal and hemp grain oil approved for animals in Texas, we can get it approved anywhere, right? Yeah. And I'm sorry, not approved, accepted. It's very specific language. Yeah, it's gotten approval. And so Tillery brought that opportunity and I reached out to Jessica, who's a fantastic technical writer. So I pull in that the principal investigation is the scientist and the researcher. Jessica puts a lot of that on paper. Tillery was our opportunity to get that into the right hands. So I'm very excited that that was able to come to fruition in Texas in January. Hempseed meal and hemp seed oil for courses, all life cycles of courses and all life cycles of chickens, That is historic. I'm so proud of that work.
0: And then we were also able- And then, so to it's going give... kind to of back up as an animal eater or animal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How did that uh, impact the animal? Just, I mean, I know there's a lot of antibi- a lot of things about chickens and hemp. So could this help with the, all the biotics or antibiotics you're giving them? And what other benefits could we see from having hemp in our um, animal's feed?
1: Yeah. So we really focused on the nutritional qualities. So meal is protein supplements. And oil is, of course, a fatty acid supplement. But one of the unique properties of hemp seed meal is that it's mechanically crushed. So it's not a solvent extraction. It's literally pressed. And so it leaves a residual amount of oil, usually up to 10%. And so it's got unique properties where it's 30% high-quality amino acids. But then it's also got this fatty acid profile. So it's a very complete feed that offers, again, that, that nice fatty acids. For horses, it even has a fatty acid that's hard to find in other oil seeds. It's a gamma linolenic acid, and so there's nutritional benefits even further for horses. But when we think about these kinds of protein supplements, they're not they're they're more sustainably produced, or at least they have the opportunity to be more sustainably produced, and. It diversifies the feedstock. When we're thinking about war in Ukraine, what's happening with the feed stores, any kind of diversification in feedstock is going to make us more stable. It's going to help the food supply and feed supply chain. So it's bigger than just the nutritional aspect. But there is some research showing if you feed natural oils into to ruminants that it will help their biome, their gut biome. And potentially reduce methane emissions. So the research needs to be done there. So I don't want anybody running around saying, "But but again, like
0: we're we're talking about, like it's a full circle." Again, we have isolated to the noids. That's what we talk a lot about in the cannabis industry. Yeah, it is so much bigger than the noids, and we talk about hemp because hemp can do so many things. And I actually didn't know how it could be used for humans for food. Like I literally didn't know any of this. Like it could be a soy soy substitute, a protein substitute. there's yep. so many other things that we have that if we were growing this in America, this could be American grown, an American project. Yeah. It, it it's such a, it's so, has so much potential. It's just kind of exciting. All right. So, what do you, what are you looking? We only have like five more minutes. Um, all right. So, what are you looking to do together in this amazing world? Do you have some policy work going. You're going to federal yes. level. What do you think of going to 1% on hemp? Is that something you're working on? What other stuff are um, you talking about?
1: I am in support of it mainly because NASDAQ, has voice support, the State Departments of Agriculture and support, and I think it's a place where we can come to some realistic regulation. What, what is concerning about 1% is that folks don't actually know what that means. So when we say 0.3%, I'm, I'm going to draw out a few numbers here, at 3,000 parts per million is 0.3%. If we go to 1%, that's 10,000 parts per million, right? And marijuana is typically one percent and above. Now that definition has been changed, so it's not it's not there anymore, but for a really long time, one percent of THC was the legal definition. But when we think about grain products, we're talking about at a maximum twenty parts per million of THC. The grass notice for human food is at 10 parts per million, but it's just a broad THC. It doesn't define what. Uh, actual polymer we're talking about. So there's this huge discrepancy in our understanding of what 1% means. Mm -hmm. However, if 1% means that farmers are not going to have their crops destroyed or have to go through remediation, then I'm a huge fan. We really need to get a handle on our genetics, make sure that we're driving yields and that we continue to manifest mm-hmm. the American ingenuity in creating these kinds of genetics that are really fit for purpose. So 1%, like I said, if that's
0: going to preserve and protect farmers, I'm all about it. I, that's, I mean, that is the thing I always, I, the thing I hear is like having to destroy an entire crop because it went over a little bit and this number is made up. And what is the real potential? Again, I can see where you're going with the 1% because we always push the limits. So. All right, so that's interesting. All right, so before we end, I want to talk about you being a mom, I can't a of mom. Um, how old is your son? Oh, he's sixteen. Okay. Very, Very opinionated. 16. Okay, can you share his sixth grade pot story with our audience, or how do you connect with him on cannabis? I don't know what do you, what do you want to share about your can of momming? I mean, it's such a funny story. Um, so <laughs> I I will happily
1: share it. But I have always been uh, candid with him when in in talking about substances. It's not just um, cannabis, its substances in general, and alcohol. Alcohol is such a detriment when it's abused and overused. And so we've always been quite candid about that. And so for most of his youth, and, and thankful, so thankful for cannabis through my pregnancy, because I don't know that we would have made it without cannabis. So it's been a part of his upbringing since before he was out. <laughs> right. And I have been working in hemp and been, been an advocate for, for well before he was born. And so I never hit it. Obviously, I would go outside and partake Was what I would tell him is that I needed some, I needed a head change or I needed to get some medicine.
0: Mm-hmm. And so
1: I described it in a few different ways because I didn't want him to think that it was only medicinal because alcohol is not medicinal. <laughs> right. And so I felt like there was a, a way to try and talk about this, still trying to navigate it. But he had gotten uh, hemp squishy. So it was in the shape of a cannabis leaf that I had given him when we went to a conference. And then he was in sixth grade. And I don't remember, I'm pretty sure it was sixth grade when we all had D.A.R.E., right? And so it's a new version, not D.A.R.E., but in his health class, they definitely talked about drugs and they talked about marijuana. And so go oh, him up, from school, and he's got his hemp squishy, like he was on his bag. And I was very clear with him that if somebody asked what it was, this is what it is. This is where it came from. And he was like, "I love hemp. Like hemp's amazing. I have clothes out of hemp. I eat yeah, hemp." Right? He was a fantastic advocate. And he gets in the car and he holds it up and he goes, "You moke pot," and I was like, "And that was not a word I had ever used with him." And I, I said, "Well, yes, yes." I do. What what do you know about cannabis? Marijuana like what, what do you what do you know about it? And he was like, It's a drug. And so that just started a whole new conversation. And it was really interesting because he he stopped carrying it for a little while, but then probably a year and a half, a few years later, it managed to find its way back onto his backpack. And I told him about the interview as I was taking him to school this morning. And then I was nervous because it was not something that I usually talk about. And he was like, and he said to me, he goes, mom, you're not that big of a deal.
0: That's what he said. Kids. But it's yep. true. Again, so, so the of moms are changing the conversation because we are raising a generation who doesn't think it's anything to be ashamed of. Again, the shame comes feel. from, again, it comes back from culture. It's always about culture, the things that are around you the policies that are decided, the rules that are made, everything is kind of made up, people. So this culture of shame was created and we bought into it. And now we're breaking the cycle literally as Canada moms because this next generation, they don't care. They they don't. It's just
1: not a big deal. And I'm really proud that he's far more concerned about alcohol consumption and overdoing alcohol. So I think... In that sense, being open and having that conversation is great. I do want him to experience things, though. I, I really I don't ever want him to be fearful of trying new things. And so that's the one place where sometimes I worry that we over overnormalized some things. But cannabis should have
0: been in our daily lives this entire time. And we should have a relationship with it. Which is just the whole idea, crushing the stigma. And again, I had this conversation with this woman yesterday who really was so anti-cannabis, which I don't run up against that often anymore, which is interesting. And my talk like it cures everything, but I know it doesn't. But what I talk about most is that it just should be an option. It just should be an option, just like everything else. If you're allowed to drink and you're allowed to take barbiturates and you're allowed to take aspirin and you're allowed to do all of the things, this is just another medication that really doesn't have that many problems. And if you want to use it for fun, that's, you know, that's good too. Cause we get to use all these other things because humans like to use things to help us experience life in a different way. I don't know. I didn't make up the rules, but that's who we I... <laughs> <laughs> all right, Hunter. Um, they're almost done. All right. So anything coming up for you that you want people to know about? If people want to connect with you, if they want to work with you, if they need your wisdom, how do they reach you and what's going on with you?
1: Absolutely. And I am accessiblehunter at agpolicysolutions.com. Emails a great way. I'm a little bit shy about always sharing my phone Not number. Sure. Imagine that. But it's farm bill season. This is the moment to talk to your state departments of agriculture. Find out who your representative is and your senators are if if you aren't motivated by in the moment issues but this is a great opportunity to say we need actual regulation and the the one opportunity and, and I really focus on green and fiber but FDA kicked the ball down the road they chose inaction um and they continued to choose in action on CBD. And what it has done is it has left us with some synthetic products that really do need to be regulated in this unregulated marketplace. We should be concerned about that. That's definitely something we should be talking to our kids and our politicians about. We need them to, the politicians, we need the legislators to take action on CBD so that we can make sure that we have access and that it's safe and that it's not in this synthetic realm of, of PhD. So if if you're not motivated by, by anything else, take a moment and get educated and just support them making this decision. Somebody has got to do it. And we're ready to regulate. We, as an industry, we're ready. The regulators are ready. It's unfortunate that we're in this position, but this is a great time to get
0: active. Oh, exciting. This is what I want to do too. All right. <laughs> Hunter, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for opening yourselves up. On the Cannabom Show, you just have a really amazing, interesting, influential story. So I'm grateful that you shared it with us and you're doing really important work. So again, for my guest, Hunter Buffington, and of course, my cannabro David Yaz and our Cannabom Show team, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to the Cannabom Show, where we are always on a mission to enhance the impact women have on the emerging cannabis industry by sharing and preserving their stories of love, kindness, wisdom, and hope. Thank you for following and sharing the story of the amazing women building this new industry so together we can crush the stigma around cannabis and caregivers. I'm your host, Joyce Gerber. This is the Cannamom Show, and we are a production of Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network.
1: Infused,
2: a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network